Thank you so much, and thank you all for coming. I'd like to pray and ask God's help before I talk about these important things. So, Father, I I need your help now because we're talking about you and what people think about you and what we think about you and feel about you, which is the most important thing in our lives. And so these are really high stakes. And so I want to be faithful to your word, and I don't want to get anything wrong, and I don't want to insert myself inappropriately. So remove every possibility, I pray. Guard me from error and from pride and from fear, and grant that everyone here would be discerning concerning what I say as to its truth. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So my title that I asked to speak on is, is Jesus an egomaniac? And uh, it's not a catchy title designed to get you here to hear something else. It's born out of encountering that objection over and over again. I'm going to give you maybe five illustrations of real life people, two of which you'll know about, three probably, who have stumbled over the apparent egomania in the words of Jesus and in the word of God, if you believe he inspired the Psalms, say. For example, Eric Ries, writer in residence at the University of Kentucky in Lexington, uh, teaches environmental journalism and writing and literature, published a book in 2009 called An American Gospel on Family History and the Kingdom of God. The only reason I know about this is because he did an interview on NPR, and that's kind of my default station in Minneapolis, and Terry Gross, you may remember the name, has a program on that station called, uh, uh, what's it called? Fresh Air, thank you. My wife listens to it also. And uh, he did an interview there about the book. Now, before I tell you what he said, they just kind of ducked me back and said, I'm preaching about that. Okay, so he, he uh, grew up in a fundamentalist Christian home, just like I did. And the difference between him and me is that he rebelled against everything in that home and went another way, trying to find a Christianity he could live with, and I rebelled against virtually nothing in that home because my father was the happiest man I ever knew and why would I want anything different? And so we had very different futures in front of us coming from evidently similar theological pasts. So he writes this book about that pilgrimage in which he talked about how Thomas Jefferson and Walt Whitman and others helped him find a kind of Christian faith that he could live with. And Terry Gross spotted on page 28 of his book, a quote about Jesus and asked him about it. I'll give you the quote, and then I'll give you what he said about it. It's a quote uh, from uh, Jesus had just said in Matthew 10:37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will find it. So that's Jesus talking, and 
Reese, in his book, Terry Gross reads this to him in the studio. She said, you, you wrote, who is the egomaniac speaking these words? Would you please elaborate on that? Calling Jesus an egomaniac. And this is what he said. I, I went to the, you can, you can do it too. I think it's probably still in their archives. You just go there and write it down like I did at NPR. Here's what he said. Well, it just struck me as, who is this person speaking 2,000 years ago, a complete historical stranger, saying that we should love him, who we can't really love emotionally, more than we should love our own fathers and sons. It just seemed incredibly egomaniacal to make a claim like that. So, here's a responsible college teacher writing books, Christian background, now just reads the Gospels as they stand. Here's Jesus say, you gotta, you gotta love me more than you love your mom or your dad or your kids. And if you don't, you're not worthy of me. And he says, that's just an egomaniac talking. You can't, nobody can talk like that and have my respect. So I read that. I listen to that and say, okay, that's serious. So that's, that was my first. I never heard anybody use the term egomaniac. I thought I used that term because I had already given a lot of thought years ago. To, Is God a megalomaniac? That was my kind of favorite term. Is God a megalomaniac? And I'll tell you about that in a minute. But I started bumping into people who really have a problem with this. So here's another one. You all know, many of you know, C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis, teacher of English literature at Oxford and then Cambridge, converted when he was about 30. In his book, Reflections on the Psalms, after he was converted, gave some explanations why it took him so long and what he was stumbling over on the way to his faith in Jesus as the Son of God, Messiah, who died for sinners and rose again. What, what hindered him from going there? And he said in the psalm, he's writing a whole book on the psalms, is that as he read the psalms, knowing that Christians claim this is the church's prayer book and that God inspired this, he inspired these people to write it this way, pray back to him this way, and he said, quote, it sounded like he was demanding worship like a vain woman who wants compliments. So that's almost the same stumbling block, isn't it? To, it's just an egomaniac. He's all into ego. He's like a person who's craving, praise me, praise me, praise me, praise me, praise me. If, if I stood up here and said, my main reason for being here tonight is to get you to praise me, you should leave, right? You should think he's sick, came all the way out here to Idaho to express his, his dysfunction, and God, all over the Bible, is saying, praise me, praise me, praise me. And people make the connection and say, I don't think that's healthy. And I don't think that's admirable. And so I'm not going to be one of those Bible-believing Christians. Third example. About, uh, I think this is about 10 years ago, Michael Prowse in the London Times was reviewing a book and he wrote this. And I, by the way, I wrote everything I'm going to say to you tonight 
boil down into two single space pages. I wrote to Eric Reese, not hard to get his address. He, he teaches in Lexington. And I wrote to Michael Prouse at the London Times because I don't want to just talk to you and point my finger and say, I don't think those guys are right. I want them to hear there's really another way to look at this. I didn't hear back from either one of them. I don't know if he got, got the letter or not. I hope, hope they did. But here's what he wrote. Worship is an aspect of religion that I always found difficult to understand. Suppose we postulate an omnipotent being who for reasons inscrutable to us decided to create something other than himself. Why should he expect us to worship him? We didn't ask to be created. Our lives are often troubled. We know that human tyrants puffed up with pride crave adulation and homage. But a morally perfect God would surely have no character defects. So why are all those people on their knees every Sunday? That's in the London Financial Times. We didn't, we didn't do any singing here. This is not that kind of event. But if I were to go to Passion, 60,000 students last January, Passion. And here's, you know, three-fourths of them got their hands in the air, jumping up and down to David Crowder and... Chris Tomlin and Matt Redman. I think if, if uh, Michael Prouse was standing there, he'd look around and say, what in the world? Why are all these intelligent, young college students caving in to this egomaniac in the sky, desire to have his ego fixed with human praise? That's what he would feel. Now, you've also heard of Oprah Winfrey. I was eating with a friend, Noel and I, at Passion, uh, eating with a friend, and I was telling him these things. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think through what this objection, what, what is it? Why is this a problem for so many people? And, and it's not hard to see why. And he said, well, you know Oprah left the faith for that reason, don't you? I said, no, I don't know anything about it. And he gave me a YouTube address. So I went back to the hotel room and went on to YouTube to listen to her tell her testimony. And I'll read you, I, I wrote that down as well. I'm thankful for the internet. You can just kind of stop, start, stop, start, and just <laughs> write things down. So she's at it, she's tw she said, I'm 27, 28 years old. Then the preacher said, the Lord thy God is a jealous God. I was into his omnipotence and omnipresence I was caught up in the rapture of that moment until he said, jealous, and something struck me. I was 27 or 28, and I was thinking, God is all, God is omnipresent, God is also jealous. A jealous God is jealous of me, and something about that didn't feel right in my spirit because I believe that God is love and that God is in all things, close quote. Now, the Bible does say, Exodus 34 in the Old Testament, you shall worship the Lord your God and have no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. And he means he doesn't share your worship with anybody. He gets angry if you give to another what belongs to him. 
If your heart was made for him and you give it to another, it makes God jealous, and that's true. And she didn't like it. So if you think through, now why wouldn't she like that? It's almost the same objection, isn't it? Here's a God who in heaven demands all my heart. And he gets really bent on the stake, like a husband who's got a wife playing around on the side with another man. He's angry, which he should be. And she doesn't like that. She doesn't want a God who's that demanding of all our affection. So she's gone from traditional Christianity. Maybe one more illustration. You've heard of Brad Pitt. Um, Brad Pitt grew up in a Southern Baptist home, like I did. And for a while, this is all written up in the Sunday Parade magazine. Um, For a while, it satisfied. Here's what he wrote. Religion works. I know there's comfort there, a crash pad. It's something to explain the world and tell you there is something bigger than you and it's going to be all right in the end. It works because it's comforting. I grew up believing in it and it worked for me in whatever my little personal high school crisis was, but it didn't last for me. And why not? His answer points to the ego problem of God. Here's what he said. I, don't, I didn't understand this idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me. You have to say that I'm the best. And then I'll give you eternal happiness. If you won't, then you don't get in. You don't get it. It seemed to me about ego I can't see God operating from ego, so it made no sense to me. So, that's why I chose the title. It's not imaginary to me, and it's uh, a story that I had to walk through myself. It's not a small thing. It's not tricky. It's not trendy. Eric Reese, C.S. Lewis, Michael Prowse, Oprah Winfrey, Brad Pitt, and others. Don Carson, who teaches at uh, Trinity, foremost New Testament scholar in the world, perhaps, said to me that he's done missions on university campuses. That would be sort of like what we're doing here. He calls them missions. Uh, And he said, I've done these for 30 years, and the questions have changed dramatically over the years. And he said, I said, like like what? He said, well, people used to ask questions like, how do you know Jesus rose from the dead? Like they wanted historical evidences. He said, you almost never get that question anymore. You get questions like, why has God got such a big head? That's what he said. So I felt like maybe then this issue is not just a stumbling block for those folks or me, but Uh, an an issue for relevance in this room as well, perhaps. So I think we're dealing with something right at the center of of the Christian faith here. And you might might think, if if you've got any experience with Christianity at all, that I thought, you might say, I thought the cross, Jesus dying for sinners, Son of God enters the universe, 
lives a perfect life, dies on a cross, rises again. Those who believe in him have their sins forgiven. I thought that was the, the center. And you're saying this issue of God's ego and how you respond to it is the center. And you know, I'm not going to argue that the cross is not the center. I'm saying when you, when you try to understand the nature of Christianity at its center, that cross event, that event, I will talk about it in, in a little bit, that event is where this issue comes to its greatest head, where God's passion for God shines most brightly and God's love for you shines most brightly and the two cease to be at odds. That's where we're going to go, which is why I don't think I'm contradicting the Bible when I say we're on to something very, very central with this issue. But before we go there, let me give you my little story. I didn't hear anything like um, God's passion for God, that phrase, until I was 23 years old. I'm 67, so now we're talking 44 years ago. And I grew up in a home where my dad, like I said, was just totally into the glory of God, loving people, trying to win as many to Christ as he could, and praying with all of his heart, loving missionaries, and, and uh, always reciting to me, whatever you do, Johnny, in word or deed, do everything to the glory of God. But I never heard him say, because God does everything to the glory of God. And so, when I began at age 23 to bump into those kinds of statements, Outside and inside the Bible, it was very jarring. Like Prowse, Winfrey, Pritt, and the others. It was very, very jarring. And the person who jarred me most was Jonathan Edwards, the fiery Puritan American preacher from the 1700s who wrote a book that almost nobody reads, and it's the most important one he wrote, probably, called The End for Which God Created the World. And in it, he develops a long philosophical argument for the fact that God created the world for himself and for his glory and for his admiration. And, and, and I said, well, that's impressive. But the second half of the book is text from the Bible after text after text to that effect. And I'm a Bible guy. I grew up in this Christian home. And I was saying, whoa, if it's in the Bible, I've got to take it seriously. And there they were over and over and over again. So I had to come to terms with this in my mid-20s or so. And what I came to see is that this is like a litmus test. And that's what it is for you right now. Um, God's God-centeredness, that's my little short phrase for these kinds of, this problem. God's self-exaltation is a litmus test for your God-exaltation. If you are at home with God's self-exaltation, then probably your God-exaltation is real. 
If you are not at home with God's self-exaltation, it may be that your relation to God is a cloak for self-exaltation. At least that's what I found to be true for me. I, I realized that as what I was dealing with in here, as I encountered God's exaltation of God, God's lifting up God, God's calling for me to praise God all over the Bible, my resistance to that was that he, he was asking to be what I wanted to be. And so I had to really seriously deal with whether my claim to be God-centered was really using God-centeredness as a cloak for John Piper-centeredness. And I think it functions that way all over the place. And I hope it functions that way for you before we're, we're done. So reading the Bible through this lens, a lens that tries to take this as a litmus test. I want to see, are you claiming to be the self-exalting God these folks say you are? And if that's true, what am I going to do with you, God? That's, that's where we're going now. So um, let's look at some, you don't, I'm just going to read them to you. Assume you don't have Bibles with you. But it's really important to see how radically committed God is to God. Namely, that these people are not making up the problem. Eric Reese, when he hears Jesus say, you got to love me more than you love anybody, he's not making up a problem. Jesus really said that. He created us for his glory. Isaiah, the prophet, chapter 43. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone I created for my glory. God says, I made you for my glory, which I think means not I made you to increase my glory, but to display my glory, to know my glory, enjoy my glory, show my glory, my beauty. I think glory is a fancy word for God's greatness and his, his beauty. So we were all made, and God did that. So it, what Genesis says... Uh, he created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So he created you in his image, which means that you are a little statue of God, right? Image is image. That's what images are for. They image. So if you put an image of yourself up in a, in a square in a town, it's because you want people to think about you. That's why you put an image up. If you put an image of Napoleon up in some town, you want people to think about Napoleon. If you're an image of God up, then you want people to think about God, and you are that. And there happens to be seven billion of you all over the world. Now, what would it mean if a God put seven billion statues of himself all over the world? It means that he really wants people to be into God. God is totally into God here. He's totally into getting attention for himself. Otherwise, Genesis 1 doesn't make any sense. Why would you create us in your image and spread 7 billion of us strategically all over the world in every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have little miniature pointers to God everywhere? Or God chooses Israel for his glory. Jeremiah 13, 11. 
I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, says the Lord, that they might be to me a people and a name and a praise and a glory. So he chose Israel for himself to deal with them for these 2,000 years before he broadens his focus on the nations and he does it to make them a praise for his name. That's what he says. Or he saved them in Egypt when he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. It says in Psalm 106, Our fathers rebelled against the Most High at the Red Sea, yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his power known. So he's rescuing Israel for his name's sake. Or go forward hundreds of years, and now all Israel has been taken into captivity in Babylon. And God says in Isaiah 48, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So he's restraining his anger and not wiping out Israel for its idolatry completely. He's restraining his anger. And the reason he's restraining it, he says, is for my name's sake. For my own glory, I'm restraining my anger. Well, let's just jump all the way to the end of history when Jesus comes back. Here's what Paul, the apostle, said is the reason he's coming back. 2 Thessalonians 1.9. He comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all who have believed. So what would Eric Reese do with that? If you say, Jesus, why are you coming back? I'm coming back to be marveled at. That's what he said. I'm coming back to be glorified. I'm coming back to be worshipped. I'm coming back so every knee will bow to me. I think Eric Reese would say, there it is again. I'm I'm not going to deal with that. That would be an understandable response, wouldn't it? Because if I said that, I came here so every knee would bow to me, you, you wouldn't like that. So why, why wouldn't you get upset with Jesus? They do, and maybe, maybe you do too. So th- those few texts, and there are hundreds like that, um, we could say bookend history, created for the glory of God, and history comes to its climax with the second coming here, with Jesus coming to be glorified. And then there's this central event called the Incarnation, where the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, takes on human form, lives a perfect life, dies for sinners, and rises again. And I'm, I'm going to argue that becomes the heart of the solution to this problem. And it is a problem. I'm trying to solve the problem of Jesus' egomania and God the Father's megalomania in demanding your worship and insisting that you fall down and praise them as the supreme being and the one who is most beautiful and most glorious and most wise and most loving and most just and most eternal. So I'm going to The rest of this talk is just built around three passages of Scripture. One that talks about God's predestining and planning for his exaltation. And the other one talking at the 
at the end of history about God's bringing that to accomplishment and then the one in the middle. And that's where we'll, we'll bring it all together. So here we go, these three passages. This one is from the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 1. And he says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now here comes the key purpose phrase. To the praise of the glory of his grace. So just collapse that down. From all eternity, God has chosen a people for himself, destined them to be adopted through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, for this purpose, the praise of the glory of the grace that was shown to them in his choosing them and his dying for them and his bringing them to himself. I created the world so that my predestining purpose of being praised for my grace would come to pass. So God is all into God in the reason that he creates the world and he adopts people into his family. He wants praise. But here it says he wants praise for grace. And this starts to sound tricky, or this starts to sound hopeful. Like, oh, so, so it may not be that the issue of demanding praise is a weak ego that needs to be shored up with lots of praise, which is, would be true if I, if I asked for your praise, that's what would be true. I would be weak and needy and, and your praise would help me cope. God doesn't need any help to cope. He's God. So there might be another motive going on here and it might be gracious. It might be gracious toward me. He might have my good at heart in demanding that I praise him for his grace, the glory of his grace. I think God's grace, that is his treating you infinitely better than you deserve, is the capstone of his glory. God is glorious because he's so full he doesn't need your praises. He flows over in kindness toward you to rescue you for his praises because it's good for you. Now here's C.S. Lewis rescuing C.S. Lewis from his error. This, this quote that I read, I forget the date now, but this page that I'm going to read, I printed out over at the Best Westerns afternoon of, of Lewis is one of the most important pages I've ever read in any book, anywhere. And I'll read it to you. This made all the lights go on for me for how God could be so into God's praise and still be a good God, uh, a loving God, a gracious God, a just God, a wise God, an admirable God, when all these people have written him off as an ego. Anyhow, here's what Lewis said. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or giving of honor. I had never noticed 
that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. Unless, sometimes even if, shyness or fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest, this, this sentence really gripped me because I just hate being a bellyacher. Uh, I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time the most balanced and capacious, you know that word, capacious, large, large-hearted, the most balanced and capacious minds praised most while the cranks and the misfits and the malcontents praised least. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise what they value, so they spontaneously urge others to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable what we delight to do, what we indeed cannot help doing about everything else we value. I think, here it comes, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. That was one of the most important sentences I have ever read. I'll read it again. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Now, do you see where that's going? Could you finish this talk? I mean, if you're really smart, I think you could. Just, you could put the pieces together. That that piece puts all the pieces together for me. Because here now, what it says is, at least the possibility is open that when God goes all through the Bible and all through the world saying, praise me, praise me, praise me, I am infinitely worthy of praise. I am more worthy of praise than any waterfall you've seen, any person you've seen, any artwork you've seen. I am infinitely more worthy of praise me. He might be saying, I want your happiness to be complete. If praising God is not just meeting his ego need, but his spilling over onto you with his fullness so that not only do you see him as the most 
magnificent being in, involving all the virtues of any being you've ever admired, all those virtues and all those beauties and all those strengths are right there. And not only that, but he's saying to you, and I will have that joy that you're having right now come to consummation and completeness because I know it happens in praise to me. I won't let you stop until you are as happy as you can be. It might mean that. And if it, if it meant that, if it meant that, God's egomania wouldn't be egomania. It would be love. That's text number one, namely Ephesians. Adopted, chosen, died for, redeemed unto the praise of the glory of the grace of God. And if, if Lewis is right, that's for your consummate happiness, right? Because praising, I remember just, this is a corny illustration, but it's corniness just might make it stick. As I was bumping into these things between the ages of 22 and 25 at Fuller Seminary, I would, I would, I would be thinking, that's right, that's right. And I'm standing there in the library and I've got the New Yorker magazine open in front of me. I only went to the New Yorker magazine for the cartoons because they were so clever. And I, I would just flip. And if there was one that was really good, it's just a library. You're not allowed to laugh. And I wanted to laugh with someone. I want, as soon as this really, really funny cartoon was there, I'd want to say, and, and that not being able to do that ruined it. <laughs> I said, you're right, Lewis, you're just right. The, the delight in the cartoon is not complete until somebody is looking at it with me, and I'm saying, praise this with me, join me in laughing at this I remember when I was a teenager, I, I, my mother, my dad's away all the time, my mom's there, I'm watching Jonathan Winters. Nobody knows who that is. He's a comedian from the 1950s, okay, on the television, funny. And I'm there all by myself, wanting to laugh. And I'm always calling my mother, come here, come here, come look at this because I needed somebody else to join me and praise it. I'm going to say, isn't that funny? That's funny, right? You and I agree that's funny. And that, that did something to make the funnies of it complete. So God, in saying, come, praise me, just might be caring about me, might be bringing me to the kind of consummate joy. Now, there's something counterintuitive at this point, before I go on to the next two texts. There's something counterintuitive about this, because what I'm, I'm saying, if this is right, and I think it is, and I'm going to try to show you some more evidences for it, um, then I'm saying it is possible for a human being to be lowly and humble and not the center of things and be supremely happy, because they're recognizing that there is another, their creator, their redeemer, who's high and lifted up and holy over them, in whom their happiness consists. 
Now, what's counterintuitive about that is that most of the people you know, probably, in this university don't feel that way. They feel good when they're center, when they're the center. And, and if they're invisible at a party, that's kind of, shoot, nobody even knew I was there. But if they're central, then that feels good. And so this feels odd. Like, you're telling us that as you go, kind of go down and God goes up, that could be really satisfying. How are we going to get anybody to believe that? Well, take them to the cartoon page of the newspaper. Or to advertisements for granola bars in National Geographic. Now, I only mention those because I just got blown away by Arlo and Janice here. This is a cartoon. You've never heard of Arlo and Janice probably, but there it is. Um, they're Swedes. And, and they're old, like me, and I can just see me and Noel doing this. So, so here's, here they are. If, you know, draw the camera and put it on the screen. Um, here they are standing out in the snow at night. Here's Arlo. It's so quiet. And here's Janice. Yes. They're, they're really old. <laughs> and Arlo says, hey, the snow's coming down. Quiet. Ever notice the best moments make you feel insignificant? End of cartoon. What was that? What in the world is that? Why would, I don't even know this guy. Who writes this? Johnson, 2006, 115. What is Johnson into? I mean, what is he, is he crazy? No, he's not crazy. He must have thought that readers have stood in the woods on a snowy evening, looking into the sky with total silence all around them and someone very precious nearby and would resonate with the statement, ever notice the best moments make you feel insignificant? So here you have a, a cartoon testifying that being insignificant might be the best moment of your life. Now this one's even more amazing. Tore this out of National Geographic. This is an advertisement for Nature Valley Trail Mix granola bar, okay? Amy Rooker's Nature Valley, Amy Rooker's Nature Valley Bar, where's yours? Fruit and nut. <laughs> now, you're sitting, this, this is in Minneapolis probably, so in a, in a room, the advertisers are in a room discussing what they're going to pay $50,000 for in National Geographic. And somebody gets the idea, I think we should appeal to people's love of, in, of insignificance. This is... This is just not going to go down. But that's what they did. So here's, this is a picture. Wish you could see this. You can come up afterwards and see it. So this is Yosemite. And maybe you've been there. There's a peak like that. And there's two people, teeny little people up here. And one of them has his or her, can't tell, hand stretched out like this. And a rope is hanging from his arm over there, and he just looks unbelievably precarious. Like, you, you could fall, and you'd be dead. You could just break, just there. 
Okay, now that's the picture. It's supposed to fill you with a sense of trembling, make your, make your legs, you know, go kind of cold. Now, what would you write at the top to sell granola bars? <laughs> what, what would you write? I mean, this, this is really profound. It's funny and it's profound. Here's what they wrote. Referring to those two little people, I presume, you've never felt more alive. You've never felt more insignificant. Are you kidding me? You're going to sell granola bars by tapping in to everybody's sense of really experiencing good insignificance? Yes, we are. That's pretty bold. What do they know that we don't? So my point is, it may feel counterintuitive to be told that God is bringing me to my experience of of deepest joy as I go down and he goes up and I spend all my eternity knowing him, loving him, admiring him, treasuring him, delighting in him, being satisfied in him and sharing him. That may be counterintuitive to people, but evidently at a deeper level, it's not counterintuitive. It sells granola bars. (laughs) Why? Maybe there was a clandestine Christian in the committee. I don't know. I don't think so. Second text. This one is John 17. This is Jesus praying in John 17. And he's praying about the end So Ephesians 1, 6 is about God's predestining us to the praise of the glory of his grace. In John 17, 24, this is Jesus praying about our final, ultimate consummations. Like, what is the ultimate end of your life? And I don't mean when it stops. I mean the goal that will just keep on going forever, that is the best it can be, and it keeps getting better forever. This is what I think Christians believe. And here's what Jesus says in John 17, 24. He's praying to his father. Father, I desire that where I am, they may be also, his disciples, to see my glory that you have given me before the foundation of the world because you loved me. So Jesus' final prayer for you is that you might see his glory. And here's... Eric Reese looking over my shoulder saying, there it is again. Just can't believe this guy. He just can't let it go. I want you all to be able to spend your eternity looking at my greatness. What an egomaniac. That's what he's saying. I want you to spend your eternity looking at my greatness. Looking at my glory. Jesus loves us in this prayer and therefore I think he's confirming what Lewis said namely that as you look at my glory you will not only be satisfied the way you are when you look at whatever you consider your most favorite thing to look at but you will be changed into the kind of person that has the capacity to enjoy that 
maximally. This is just taking it just a step deeper here. One of the responses you should have, if, if this is starting to sound at all plausible to you, that God may be doing it just this way for you, one of the things you should respond with is saying, I don't, I don't think I have the capacity to enjoy God or Jesus the way you're talking about. I hear the words, it's sort of, you know, word, at the word level, okay, if, if it were like chocolate or if it were like sex or, you know, pizza or, or the Grand Canyon or, or the Yosemite, yeah, maybe, but a but gee, a historical person I can't see, and a God I can't see, I don't, I don't think I have the emotional wherewithal to, to experience the joy you're talking about, and therefore the whole thing just kind of collapses like a house of cards for me. It just, it's not going to get anywhere because I know what makes me happy, and it isn't that. In the next verse, next two verses, here's what Jesus prays for you. Prays for those who are willing to venture all on this future. This is verse 26 of John 17. Father, I made known, so this is right after he says, Father, I desire that they would be with me to see my glory. So he evidently believes that would be wonderful for us. And indeed, it would be. And we would praise him, and that praise would be the consummation of our joy. We'd spend eternity finding creative ways to do it and show it. John 17, 26 says, Father, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you, Father, have loved me might be in them and I in them. You know, sometimes people take the Gospel of John as the simplest gospel. You know, give it to an unbeliever, maybe they'll read it and understand. The Gospel of John is not simple. It is just layer upon layer of profundity. And this is one of those. So let me read it again. Father, I made known to you your name. These disciples of mine, I made known your name. They know you now. And I'm going to continue to make it known that the love with which you loved me, so now picture this, in eternity, this very Trinitarian, if you want to ask me about the Trinity later, that's fine, we're going to have a Q&A afterwards. So you get God, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the Father says to the Son, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased, and in the mouth of God, that's, that's infinitely powerful. The Father God has infinite energy in his love for the Son. There's no moderate love between the Father and the Son for all eternity. This is the Son reflecting back to God everything that God is and the Father generating the Son, imparting all that he is eternally one. And the love between them is infinite and glorious. And it says here, the love with which you have loved me, Father, will be in them. Which means that as you sit there and as I stand here and I fret 
that my broken personality, my broken home background unfits me with the capacity to enjoy people, period. I don't enjoy people. I don't love people. I just love sensations like sex and food. And if you feel that, this text says that's going to change. The very love that God has for the Son is going to be in you so that when Jesus says, I'm going to show you myself so that you can be satisfied in me forever, he's not going to leave you to yourself. He's not going to say, well, I guess you don't have the energy to do that. I guess you don't have the capacity to see me or know me or love me or be satisfied in me or treasure me. Sorry. He's not going to leave it there. I will put the love that the Father has for me in you so that you will love me with the very love that the Father loves me. That is scary good. So the second text out of the three, we're almost done, um, is that at the end of the age, the climax of my happiness is found in Jesus saying, Father, show them my glory. So that every time Jesus talks like an egomaniac, you got to love me above all things. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I am superior to every other value in your life. Every time he talks like that, he's offering himself to us as a treasure which if we would treasure it and be satisfied in it would make us supremely satisfied so that his pursuit of his fame or his exaltation in us is the pursuit of our joy in him. And therefore, it's not egomania, it's love. One more illustration of this. I said I would come back eventually to the cross, which is the center where Jesus dies, the center of Christianity. So here we are. One more passage. I'll read it to you. This is, I think, if you had put a gun to my head and said, all right, tell me the most important paragraph in the Bible. If you're wrong, you're dead. <laughs> I, I, this is the one I would read. <laughs> all have sinned. This is Romans 3, 23 to 26. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. So sinners can be declared just, righteous, accepted as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, that word means a, a removal of wrath. So when you propitiate a God, you take away his anger. So God is put forward as a propitiation by his blood, that is, by dying, he absorbs and removes the wrath of God from those who trust him. This was to show God's righteousness. So the cross Jesus dying, shedding his blood to take away the wrath of God is to demonstrate God's righteousness. He's going to vindicate God here. 
<clears throat> because, the logic here is really important, because in his divine forbearance or patience, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I think that's the most important paragraph in the Bible. Let me walk through it just briefly with you. So, propitiation. Christ is sent into the world by the Father to bear and absorb the anger of the Father against us because of our unwillingness to treasure the Father and delight in him and honor him and worship him and choosing other things besides God and thus bringing reproach upon the name of God and blackballing God and saying, you're not worthy, food is worthy, you're not worthy, sex is worthy, you're not worthy, money is worthy, you're not worthy, fame is worthy. And Jesus dies to absorb God's wrath at my doing that, and I have done it every day of my life. You can ask me about that too if you want. I still need to be died for, and I have been. Every day of my life. Romans 8, 3, what the law could not do God did, he condemned sin in the flesh. What does that mean? God condemned sin in the flesh. It means that sin needs to be condemned, needs to be punished. He did it, he punished it. Where, what? In the flesh. Whose flesh? Not mine. I'm standing here. I'm not in hell. I'm not in hell. Why? Because Jesus' flesh took it. Or Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Those the law curses those. It says, you're going to die if you disobey God. Everybody disobeys God. Everybody's under a death sentence. What hope is there? One, Christ becomes a curse. So that's what propitiation means. Why did he do it that way? Why, why go about it that way? The answer in the text is, verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness. So why did you have to send your son to die in order to remove your wrath from the people who trust Jesus so that they could have eternal life and joy? Why did you do it that way? And he says, to vindicate my righteousness. Well, why was your righteousness in question? What's his answer to that? His answer to that is because in his patience he had passed over former sins. Now, right here, you've got to realize, are you American or are you reasonable? <laughs> a, a, a typical American response would, would look at that and say, what? God needs to vindicate his righteousness because he passed over sins? That's what God does. I mean, Americans just assume God forgives. That's not a problem. You don't need to kill anybody. 
You don't need to have your son die. Just let it go. Let sin go. That's what you do. You're God. You're gracious. You're loving. I saw it in the news, in the airport in Detroit. It's right there in the book stand. And what's her name wrote the book? Can't remember her name. That's just as well. This is on tape. So Americans believe that's the way God is. God, you don't need to prove anything. Just forgive. That's, that's American talk. It's not what... Paul, Paul's biggest problem was that God forgives. Now, you, th- this is counterintuitive, but it won't be in just a minute. He passed, it says, because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Let's give you an example, all right? David and Bathsheba. You all know the story, right? King David should have been out fighting with the troops, standing on his roof, sees a naked woman bathing, wants her, kings get what they want, sleeps with her while her husband's out defending the kingdom, gets her pregnant, oh my, I'm in trouble. Let's get her husband home, I get him to sleep with her, they won't know it's my baby. That's our great David, right? And Uriah won't do it. Her husband is too noble, won't go home and sleep with his wife while all of his comrades are out there in the field risking their lives. And so David tells Joab, get him killed. Okay, so you got adultery and you got murder. And Nathan, the prophet, is sent by God to confront David with what he did, right? Tells a little parable about the sheep that a rich man steals and David gets all bent out of shape, and of course he's talking about himself. And when he gets really angry at the man who represents himself in the prophet's parable, Nathan says, you're the man. That's what you did. You had all the women you want, and you took this one woman from this one faithful man. You're a rat. And David's response was, I have sinned against the Lord. And out out of Nathan's mouth come these words, the Lord has taken away your sin. Goes right on ruling. Okay, now put yourself in the position of Uriah's dad. Bathsheba's mom. No! No, you cannot do that. You can't just say, your sin is taken away. And on the Hennepin County Court bench, any judge that did what God did there would be impeached. And you know it, and he should be. Like you just raped a woman and you just killed her husband. Not a problem. You're free. I forgive you. Go about your ruling. No punishments. There were some consequences. David should have been in hell. So that's what verse 25 means when it says, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins, And now he has to vindicate 
David's forgiveness. Otherwise, he's a stinking, rotten, no-count judge that should be off the bench. That's what God is. And how does he vindicate his righteousness? Like this. What is righteousness? Got to think this through with me. Just another five minutes. What is righteousness? Righteousness is doing, thinking, feeling what's right. Well, what, what is right? Well, right would be valuing what is valuable and, and devaluing what is not valuable. Well, what is valuable? God's glory is infinitely valuable. Well, how did you just treat God's glory, God, when you just let it go that David trampled your glory so badly? What, what, what are you saying about your glory, God, when you just said, you're forgiven? You're saying it's not very valuable. That's what you're saying. And God says, yeah, it does look like that, doesn't it? Well, we'll fix that in about a thousand years. Because I'm going to pour out my wrath on David's sin like you never dreamed. And vindicate the value of my glory like you've never seen. I'm sending God Almighty into the world. And he will bear my wrath. And he will show the world I never, ever sweep sin under the rug of the universe. And I never belittle my glory. And anybody that thinks anybody gets away with belittling my glory, they don't. Every sin will be punished infinitely, either in hell or on the cross. You choose. So, now I know that even though I have spent a lifetime falling short of the glory of God, verse 23, I have spent a lifetime as John Piper wanting to know him, love him, treasure him above all things, and knowing that every single day I fall short of valuing him the way I should and speaking with words that reflect his value and acting in ways towards my wife and my children and my friends in ways that reflect his supreme value instead of the the praise I want or the self-pity I feel or some advantage I want to get. I have failed over and over again. Now I know how it can be that I could expect that I would join God and admire him and praise him and be satisfied in him in infinite joy forever. And the answer is Christ. He covers that failure for me, which is the heart of Christianity. So let me Let me sum it up like this. Um, Number one, in summary, God is the one being in all the universe for whom self-exaltation is the highest virtue and the most beautiful act of love. You may not copy him in this because you're not God. When he lifts up himself, he's lifting up the one thing that will make me happy. If he were to conceal himself, he would be taking from me the very thing I was made to be happy in. The reason God seeks our praise is not because he won't be fully God if we don't praise him, but we won't be fully happy 
if we don't praise him. And therefore, it's not arrogance, it's love. And my answer to the question is, Jesus is not an egomaniac. What looks like egomania is the way an infinitely beautiful person loves sinners. Now, we're going to shift into a time of Q&A. So, how are we going to do it? You want to set it up for us? So, uh, we've got these two microphones down here at the front. If you've got a question, please come on down and line up on either side. We'll alternate answering questions from each side. And uh, last thing, please limit yourself to one question. So, come on down. Yeah, anything goes, really. It doesn't have to be just about what I've said. If you've just been itching to ask something, feel free. If I don't know, I'll just say I don't, I don't know. Hello. <laughs> um, yeah, I have a question. Um, could the objection be raised that it is egomania to create us in such a way that the only way to be truly joyful and happy is to praise God? Could be. But I think given that God is God, that is the only way. In other words, if you are... I've often said God is just stuck with being great. Um, he, he can't not be beautiful. He can't not be wise. He can't not be just. He can't not be loving. He can't not be all satisfying. And therefore, as he contemplates a way in which to share himself with something that is not himself, He's got these two ways. They can praise me and they can be satisfied in me. Wouldn't it be a great idea if those were the same? I think that's, that's just the way it has to be, given his loving, just, wise, infinitely glorious nature. So yeah, a person could call that egomania, that he set it up that way. But I, I think my answer just goes all the way back to the beginning and the answer would be the same. Thank you. I just have a quick question. Uh, what C.S. Lewis book was that you quoted from? Because that was a really excellent quote. It was moving, wasn't it? Yeah. Reflections on the Psalms, it's called. Page 93 in my edition. Awesome. Thank you very much. Yeah, Reflections on the Psalms. Hey, John. I'm Eric. Thanks for being here. Yeah, not Eric Reese, though. Not Eric Reese. <laughs> I wish you were. He misrepresents. We have a conversation. He misrepresents the name. You know, okay. there's, there's some good of us out there. Um, so this is more of a personal question, but I was just wondering, what was the most pivotal moment for you um, in becoming a Christian? You said you grew up in a Christian home. Um, obviously, went to seminary. But what was kind of um, 
It's your defining moment, so to say. Well, I'm going to say something I hope is really encouraging. I don't remember. <laughs> um, because my mother told me that I professed faith when I was six. And I don't remember doing it. She said that in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, I heard the gospel again and got convicted of my sin and talked to her about it and knelt with her in a motel and prayed to confess my sinful nature to God and ask him to save me. And so I don't have any memory of that, which means that you don't have to remember being born to know you're alive. None of you remembers being born. So if I were to ask you, how do you know you're alive? You wouldn't reach for your birth certificate, right? It's like, like Sesso right here, Chattanooga. You would say, <laughs> and, and that's, that's what you do spiritually. So really, really, this, this is a profound point I'm trying to make to encourage the believers among you who have no memory of any big transition in your life. I certainly don't. I don't ever remember being an unbeliever. However, my, oh my, has God met me along the way and slapped me up the side of the face to correct me and shown me crazy things I've been believing and, and uh, put me onto his word and more onto his grace. And it's still happening today. I'm still discovering aspects of my own sinful heart that need, I need to be saved from. So I'm getting saved every day. <laughs> so sorry I don't have any big pivotal moment, but maybe that'll encourage people who don't have any either. Yeah. Well, thank you for satisfying my curiosity. Yep. Hey, Pastor John, how's it going? Um, I had a question for you. This one's kind of a more broad one, but I was going to see if, if there's any particular verse or piece of doctrine that you've come across that um, you feel like for young men and young women um, that you feel like is, a, is beneficial in um, seeing God's glory played out most in our life. If there's any one like nugget you would give for that. Um, well... At the imperatival level, it would be 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. And I think eating and drinking is chosen there because they're so ordinary. I mean, if eating and drinking can and should be done to display the glory of God, then everything else should because surely that's about as ordinary as it, as it gets. Uh, but here's, here's another one. Um, whatever is not from faith is sin. Now, what does that mean? If sin is falling short of the glory of God. That means everything you do should be done in reliance upon God and in relying upon God, the doing of it reflects his sufficiency, not yours. So Paul boasted in his weakness. So maybe that would be one last text to refer to. Second, that was uh, Romans 14.23. So Second Corinthians, you know, so 1 Corinthians 10.31, Romans 14.23, and now 2 Corinthians 12.9, where it says, um, I asked that this thorn in the flesh would be taken away. I asked three times, and God said to me, Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power 
you could say glory, is made perfect in your weakness. And he said, I will all the more gladly therefore boast in my weakness. For the sake of Christ then, I am glad. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, calamities, persecutions. For when I am weak, then am I strong. So, so what we should feel is, okay, if I'm supposed to live for his glory, that doesn't mean, okay, exploits. This is not the way Paul thought. Rather, it's in everything, including my most broken, insulted moments, my weak moments, whatever that thorn was, at that moment, as I rely upon God to be my sufficiency, he's getting lots of glory right there. That's great. Thank you very much. I'll, going back and forth. All right. Um, so my question goes back to at the beginning of your talk. You said um, Brad Pitt and uh, Oprah. Yeah. Um, you know, came came out and said, "Ah, I used to be Christian. Now I'm not, or whatever." Yeah, yeah. So my question is, do you think that someone who was truly, um, truly saved, uh, you know, trusted in Christ, right. later on came out and denied it, and said? Right. No, I, I'm done with this. I, I no longer trust God. Are they still saved? Yeah. Um, I'm going to treat them as though they're not if they say they don't believe. But whether they are or not is going to show by whether they repent. In other words, it is possible for there to be extended backsliding Jeremiah calls it. He says, I will save you from all your backslidings, which is a wonderful text. So you, you, could, you could have come to the university here as a pretty zealous Christian and threw it away. And you might think, well, did I or didn't I? And I don't know the answer to that question. I don't think a person who is genuinely born again can be unborn again, can be lost. And I say that largely because of Romans 8, 32 and because of 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, so this be Brad Pitt went out from us, Oprah went out from us, because they were not of us. Because if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they were not of us. That's John's way of talking about how he distinguishes between the people who are truly born again and those who aren't. And I'm just going to add this com complexifying, if that's a word, factor and say, John, but y you also believe that they went out from us for two weeks and came back doesn't mean they got born again, unborn again, born again. Because what we're born into is eternal life. That's what the new birth is. It is birth into eternal life, not life that goes on, off, on, off. So in God's sight, nobody's lost who was ever truly saved. From our perspective, we can't be quite sure, we can't be as sure as he is. And so my, my, my mode toward a person who is one of you maybe who's just saying I'm just done with this I'm done with this is to say you know I would take a warning mode here I'd say you know if you go on 
in this unbelief that you're now experimenting with to the end of your life, throw it all away, deny Jesus, you won't be saved. That's why I would talk, I would talk to them that way. Not even knowing whether they are saved or not. I just say, if, if you go on like that. I think, I think that's the way the, the Bible talks. I think that's the way Paul talks to people. If you do such things, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He talks in warning language like that to the church. I think the most disconcerting argument against um, Christianity is actually that uh, Christ says that Christians will bear fruit if they follow him. Um, why is it that so many Christians that seem, adamant, seem ardent about their belief do not bear fruit? How is it then, why and how can Christians stagnate? When you say bear fruit, what do you have in mind? Um, like love, joy, peace, patience, that kind of fruit? Or? I w- no, I would say, I guess, in continually being sanctified. Okay. What, what's the balance between bearing fruit and their sins being covered? Right, right. Um, you're absolutely right that where there is no transformation, we have good reason to doubt the authentic nature of their faith. So but it, you're also right to say that a lot of visible Christians, a lot of Christians seem to stagnate. They don't go very far. They don't fight very hard. They don't pursue very diligently and grow very much. And what are we to make of that? And it seems to me that the New Testament knows that kind of person too. Babes in Christ in First Corinthians 3. Um, and it seems to me that the New Testament um, exhortation to keep on growing in faith and love implies we're not there yet. So it knows people when when it talks to when Paul talks to to the elders in First Thessalonians and says to bear with the the weak and the lethargic. And he, he's got this categorization of Christians. You say, well, they don't, they're not even Christians if they're like that. And he said, well, yes, yeah, they are, and we need to help them along. So if the question is why why is that? The answer is the flesh is not a non-entity after you become a Christian and my old nature is constantly trying to reassert itself and must be reckoned dead daily. The devil is against me and is shooting his fiery darts at me and Paul is saying, lift the, lift the shield, lift the shield. If you don't lift the shield, it's going to hit you. And if it hits you, you're into anger, you're into self-pity, you're into temptation to steal, lust, whatever. It, it's, so, so the devil is all over us in this, in this world. And then we're surrounded in Moscow and every other city with a secular mindset that's constantly preaching the wrong things to us. So we've got enemies. That's why they're inside, they're outside, and they're making life real hard for us to grow. Thank you. You're welcome. So um, I got a question going back to creation. Um, just kind of curious. I mean, sometimes I often tell myself it's a stupid question, but... If God created everything, who created God? That's a great question because it's a two-year-old question. <laughs> hey, you know, we're forever That's young. That's not right? a criticism. <laughs> Kids ask the best questions, right? We're, we're afraid to ask their questions. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm kind of afraid of asking that question right now. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody created God, so that's the short answer. And um, if you say, well, why didn't somebody have to, since we look at this world and say somebody had to? That's the very nature of what it means to be God. You, when, you, when you contemplate ultimate reality, which everybody does, scientists do, you, you can contemplate it as a personal being or as a gas or 
blob or substance or energy or whatever you want. Just, just whatever science in that century is calling it, it's out there. And we say, well, here's a person. And it, as I've tried, you know, I, at certain points in my life, I've tried to be an unbeliever. I mean, I've tried to imagine as, as honestly as I could without getting too scary. Let's just suppose I didn't, didn't believe in a person of God. What, what would be back there to get this? You. What, what, what would be back there? And as I've tried to think, I mean, words like Big Bang... They should do nothing for me. I mean, it's, what's that? How does that explain anything? It's, and if, on balance, it seemed to me that it's, if you, had, if you had no subsequent evidence in the present of what was eternal, and you just had to guess what eternal was, and your two options were uh, energy and matter and personal being, It'd be a toss-up, be 50-50, right? Why not? Why not? It's just, just leave out the evidence of the present and say 50-50 that get matter and energy or personal being. Who's to say? Like, okay, flip a coin. So what we have to do then, since that's just a 50-50 draw, is to say, okay, now we've got to deal with what's come of that. Now, which is more likely? That all you persons who will not believe, you won't believe that you are mere energy and matter. And no, you won't. You won't live that. You'll, you'll write that on a test exam to say that's what we are, but you won't live that. Not if somebody uh, cheats you on your bank account. You're going to plead justice. You're not going to plead, atoms went awry, you know, molecules amiss here. Can't do anything about that, so I guess I'll just have to let the account be, you know, the bank got their molecules wrong this month. <laughs> none of you, this is no joke, none of you live that way. And you're a hypocrite if you put it on your test and don't live it. And you don't live it. The professors that might try to teach you it, they don't live it either. It's a language game. And so, given what you see right here and the way you live your lives, you're testifying to the fact, I think, that you believe ultimate reality that goes back forever, forever, something goes back forever, is personal being. And then just kept terms with, okay, what does that mean? And C.S. Lewis just followed that from atheism to idealism to theism to Christianity. And then he said, wow, now I've got to deal with, with Christ and he's not, he's not an idiot. Thank you. Good evening. Um, I listen to a lot of Christian rap, and I've always been wondering since uh, a lot of your sermons come up in songs by Lecrae and Tadashi and uh, Trip Lee, and I've always been curious, what is your connection with them and your relationship with them, if any? So that's what we should have talked about tonight, it sounds like. This is just the most strange thing in my life. I don't even understand rap. I, you're absolutely right. I know these guys. I, they, I didn't make that connection. I didn't look for that connection. I mean, I, that's just one of the mysteries of the web, right? Everything I've ever said is on the web. 
And so when Tadashi goes and finds a sermon where I say, make war, he, he uses it. Okay, okay. What, what can I do? I, um, so when, they, when I do that and they say, they, they, they like to meet you and they're in Minneapolis. I say, fine, let's meet. So I, I've gotten together, I love them. They're just, and here's the amazing, I mean, here's, here's the, what, the reason I'm willing to defend Christian hip hop or rap. It is an incredibly dense with word media, medium, right? It, there is no other medium that can pack so many words into one song. <laughs> and if you are into truth like these guys are, that's amazing. And so I just pray, I really pray that as Lecrae, who, who's remarkably influential right now, I think he's going on BET, um, maybe it just already happened, but um, I pray that that truth remains and that it has a stunning effect in, in that, that world. And, and, you know, the statistics are that it's, it's young white men who listen to hip-hop around the world, mainly. <laughs> um, produ produced by blacks and... Um, and that's a wonderful thing, too, because maybe you'll get saved. <laughs> so, is any more than that? No, I mean, that's what I was wondering. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, this is more of a, a personal question, but um, as an individual who's recently, or within the last few years, been uh, revealed what his purpose is um, for Christ in his life and doesn't really want to pursue it and is, like, terrified to pursue it, what would you suggest as a way to compel oneself to kind of resolve that or remedy that? Now, say again, the, the, the obstacle. The uh, not wanting to pursue what you know is your right. predestined walk. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's exactly where all of us are at one time or another. N nobody stays on a I want to high. Everybody is up and down, and some people are. All, always down, and that's the kind of situation it sounds like you're talking about. The way the Bible, the way God, it seems to me, awakens want to is with descriptions of beautiful things. In my presence is fullness of joy. At my right hand are pleasures forevermore. He says things like that, Psalm 1611. Now, why, why would he say that? And he says that because he wants the person reading the psalm to feel some quickening, some awakening down here. Like, really? Pleasures forevermore? Fullness of joy? I'm not feeling that right now. You have that? And that would lead to a cry? Restore, this is David talking, restore to me the joy of your salvation? So those are, those are two things. One, expose yourself, or if you're talking to somebody else, I don't know. Um, expose yourself truth that is beautiful about God. And it's all over the Bible. And secondly, plead with God to help you see that. Open my eyes that I might see wonderful things out of your word and unite my heart to fear your name and, and uh, cause me to rejoice like a deer pants for the flowing stream. So looking and, and praying. Just one other example. You know, when, when Jesus said, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. 
when men say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And he said, rejoice and be glad. And he didn't just stop there and say, I told you soon, so do it. That, that, that doesn't work. That's where a lot of parents make that mistake, right? Like, I told you, do this, and period. And, and authority matters, but the Bible never, never wants you to simply follow God for raw authority. The next phrase is, for, rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. So at that point, I would say to the person, explore what that is. Because Jesus just said, if you have this reward, you can rejoice even when you're being spit on and laughed at and beat up and put in jail like Pastor Saeed in, in Iran. And uh, so the, I think the Bible is given to us. What did Paul say in Romans 15.4? These things are... Uh, whatever was written beforehand was written for your encouragement, but that by the steadfastness and encouragement of the scriptures, you might have hope. And then he closes that chapter. Uh, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So... Look at all the truths of the word concerning God and your future and your reward and and then plead with God to open your heart. All right, thank you. To desire it. I guess my question is kind of going off of um, the last question, but in your book, um, The Dangerous Duty of Delight, you really talked about how joy and the feeling of joy, not just like the choice of joy, is a duty in our relationship to God that we have to feel that joy for him. Um, So I guess my question is, when you're dealing with people or you yourself are walking through like depression and just like really deep sorrow and sadness and really just almost like negative, like not even just like borderline, but really negative. um, How do you, one, like not walk in condemnation because you know that you're in sin and you're not rejoicing in God and you feel like you're doing all the duties, you're reading in the word, you're with the body of Christ, you're seeing the beauty of creation, you're reading the Psalms, you know, you're seeing all these things and doing all these things, but it, it just isn't like happening in your right. soul. And so you, you're walking in condemnation on yourself yeah. because of that. Right. Right. I, I don't think the solution to feeling guilty about not feeling joy is to say it doesn't matter that you don't feel joy. A lot of people would go that route. That's a quick fix that I don't think is right. I think, I think grace and the cross are the answer. In other words, I have said to you in the last hour that every day of my life, John Piper falls short of the kind of delight that God should get from me. Every day of my life, I fall short of treasuring him with the intensity he merits, which means, to use your language, I could be walking every day under condemnation, right? Because I fail every day. And you're talking about just intensification of that where you're depressed or you just lost a child, say, and your, your world just crashed in around you or your marriage broke up or just something horrible, horrible happened in your life. And this is not a rah-rah moment at all. And John Piper says, and the Bible says, you're supposed to rejoice in all things, give thanks for all things. I'm not feeling joy in this right now. And therefore, I'm multiplying my misery by hearing John Piper talk about the duty of delight in this moment. 
My answer to that is, that's why he died. That's why he died. In other words, yes, it would be better if our um, heart breaking and tears running down my face right here would say with 2 Corinthians 6.10, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. I'm not minimizing sorrow and I'm not minimizing pain and brokenness. I know how to cry. I've cried way more than 90% of you, I'm sure. And I don't begrudge tears. I think we ought to be grieved. Weep with those who weep and be grieved over our sin and lots of things in the world we should be grieved over. But sorrowful yet always rejoicing is Paul's mantra, which means Christians are called upon to do the miraculous thing that the world just can't fathom. So I'll just be real personal. When my mother was killed, I was 28 years old, all right? Um, my mother was far closer to me than my dad. And uh, when I got the phone call, Noel remember this, um, I heard my brother-in-law say, mom and dad were in a bus accident in Israel. Your mom didn't make it. Your dad's in the hospital. He may not make it. Um, I'll let you know when I know more. <laughs> the kind of phone call. You hang up the phone. You say to your wife, mom's dead. Just let me be alone for a little bit. Walk back, kneel down by my bed, cry for two hours. And at every moment, my heart is saying, thank you for her. You've been a good God to me. She was such a good mom. Thank you. Thank you. I have tasted what it means to be profoundly sorrowful and profoundly thankful and rejoicing. So um, I'm just going to take a person that's depressed and I'm going to walk beside them as long as they'll let me and pour as much truth about the goodness of God into them until, until they'll stand upright again. Thank you. I wrote, by the way, a book called uh, When I Don't Desire God, and the subtitle is How to Fight for Joy, and the last chapter is called When the Darkness Does Not Lift. And then it was published as a separate book because it was the chapter that helped most depressed people. It's about depression. When the darkness does not lift. So little, little paperback. You probably could go to Desiring God and get the PDF free, can't you? Yeah, so free. Just print it out tonight. So about 30 pages probably. Thank you. Yeah, I was just curious more about the, um, the Holy Trinity. Like I'm brand new to Christ as well. And um, you said the, the second piece of the Holy Trinity was yeah. Jesus Christ. I was also curious if you could just answer um, if it was the Holy Spirit that had impregnated uh, Mary and yeah. what, and I don't know like really anything about the Holy Spirit, if you could kind of elaborate on that for me. Okay, let me just give you my little th two minute theology of, of the Trinity and relate it to the incarnation. Um, this, is, this is Jonathan Edwards in brief, and it is a conceptual, picture that is, I think, implicit in the Bible, but not explicit. So from all eternity, you have the Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And the way they relate is that God has 
an image of himself from all eternity. Jesus is called in 2 Corinthians 4 the image of God. God has an image of himself and he bears the exact representation and he has the full nature. So it seems that God knows himself fully and that knowledge of himself as it were, stands forth so fully, carries so much of what the Father is of himself that he too is a person. The idea or the logos or the reason or the uh, knowledge of the Father. So now you have a father and a son because the Father knows himself in so fully that that is a person. The energy between them here the love between them here that carries back and forth all that the Son is to the Father and the Father is to the Son stands forth as a third person of the Trinity, namely the Holy Spirit, who is the embodiment of the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father. So that's a way of conceptualizing. It helps me. It doesn't help everybody, but it helps me. Now, when the Father covenants with the Son, will you take on human flesh and die for a people that will be innumerable, will surround us forever and ever and praise us and be full of joy in us. The Son says, I will. And the Holy Spirit, the Father says, all right, here's the way we're going to do it. We're going to choose a virgin. She will never have known a man. And I want you, Holy Spirit, to go down and cause there to be a conception in her, and that conception will be the divine nature of the Son taking on. And those are just words, I know, but that would be as close as I can get to describing the way the three were involved in the, the uh, coming of Christ into the world as a God-man. All right, I'm sorry, but I think we're out of time, so... Please feel free to stick around, and we'll try to get all your questions asked, answered. But uh, let's give a hand to Dr. Pike. Thank you.